Good evening to our Bloomberg audience. Welcome back to 880 The Biz. As you know, it is Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m., where we are getting real, staying relevant, and increasing revenue. Real time with the CJ Radio Show starts right now. Get that, go! It's the CJ Radio Show. So we are lucky enough, one of our friends in Washington, D.C. reached out to us and said, you know what, you guys should really look into this. And it is Anthony Tony Alexio from the Minotaur Group. Now, the Minotaur Group really focuses on high-level political and economical analysis. But he's the senior leader and he's the executive trainer for a number of companies and industries. He works with large private sector and government on strategic planning, risk, hazard, mitigation analysis, as well as providing safety and security training for a number of different executives out there. Tony, are you with us tonight? I am. Thank you very much for having me. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It should be exciting. Pleasure is ours. Daybreak Asia is over. And now we're going to move into a little bit more comprehensive analysis. But um, are we looking at a Cold War with China? I, I think we are, but not in the, in the sense that, that we're used to seeing. You know, the last Cold War the Earth saw was, you know, the Soviet Union versus the U.S. and and the two various groups that existed within within each sphere of influence. It was easy to, to, to know which side anybody was on. There was a clear demarcation between the two groups. And and the goal was was not economic more than it was military domination spread of either the communist or capitalistic doctrine, whichever, you know, whatever the side was on. This Cold War with China, I do believe that we will eventually develop into this. The the the, the pattern is there. It's it's not gonna be quite that clear cut on whose side what is on oh sorry which side every person which which side every country is on you know china is well well it is a military power it's its priority has always been economics and spreading their brand of, of economy all over the world you know the chinese are, are about making money they're not about you know militarily dominating the world uh and as such a lot of countries that are traditionally western allies uh a lot of countries in, in, in the nato alliance australia canada new zealand uh do a lot of business with china even the united states States does a lot of business with China. Uh, you know, a little bit less these days, but you know, there was a period of time where, where China had most nation favored, most favored nation trading status in the United States, and that's 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 going to be the the difficult trying to figure out how this all is going to sort out. You know, you have Canada and Australia, for example, that are close allies of the United States and see the U.S. as a very as a major security partner. But they also do a great deal of business with China, and they see China as a significant economic partner. Now, hell, some of these countries are having Huawei, the uh, the Chinese cell phone company, build their five G networks, which is giving heartburn to a lot of members of the administration here in D.C. But well, that's that's going to be the the problem that we're going to be facing with with, with this thing, with this if it's, with this Cold War as it develops. Could it be uh, you know Cold War of U.S. versus just the U.S. versus China? and maybe various countries, depending on what, what their their nuances are in a given moment, choosing one side or the other, it could very well be the case. You know, we're, we're looking at a multipolar world right now. There's really only one true superpower, and that's us. And, and, and China's making a play for that. But again, it's not military, it's economic. Now, you know, I have a couple of, I have a couple of comments on that. Um, regarding the military aspect, through news, not sources, but through just general news, have seen, and this is over a number of different years, with uh, the Solomon Islands and the surrounding area, the Chinese Navy. Um, China 
because China, they just, they leased an island for 75 years and built a military port that can dock, they could dock a uh, aircraft carrier there. And our last mm-hmm. guest made a joke that even if they could dock it, does the thing even work? So military wise, we've seen that. And as we discussed on our, our previous call, I have seen a lot of news And this is not coming from sources, but just general news that the Australians are really not happy doing a business in China anymore. No, no, nobody is is quite as happy as they used to be. COVID has has shown a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of kinks in what was the vast Chinese supply chain around the world. You know, up until six months ago, you know, Walmart is stocked with Chinese made goods, almost 100 percent top to bottom as an example. And that's repeated throughout the world. China has become a hub of of cheap manufacturing and a lot of countries, a lot of major companies have outsourced their manufacturing there with the assumption that the supply chain will work itself out the way it always has. Well, now we have COVID uh, and we had, you know, we've got a world that is, is many countries have shut down their borders. Trade is not what it used to be. China itself was unable in the beginning of the year due to their own, due to the outbreak there to be able to keep up with manufacturing demand on, on not just, you know, everyday trinket goods, but, you know, medicines, masks, respirators, things that, that were important to everybody right now the last few months and still are, for that matter. And it's a lot of countries, you know, Australia, the U.S., a lot of Western countries are, are looking at a situation where maybe the supply chains aren't what they should be. Maybe they're not as strong and as secure as everyone thought they were. And would it make sense to bring some manufacturing back home? And if not back home, bring it back regionally. You know, would the U.S., you know, look away from manufacturing plants in China and, and look at places like, you know, Mexico or the Caribbean or Canada, uh, if not in the United States itself, uh, just for any reason, for the basic reason that things just become closer at that point. Continental, basically. Continental, of course. But on the flip side, though, you know, this is not to count out China. China's not going to wither away economically. They've got a huge footprint in Africa. They've got a huge footprint in Eastern Europe. Now, hell, they control half the seaports in, in Greece, for that matter. And that's all you through know. debt, correct? It's 100% through debt. Yes, mm. everything is. Uh, yeah, everything is done through debt. But they are making money on this stuff, though, and they are. You know, the Chinese are, are, are shrewd businessmen at the end of the day, which is kind of funny to say that about a communist country. Really, you know, the irony of it. You know, because yeah. they're communist politically, they're authoritarian politically. This is the deal that the Chinese government made with the Chinese people. We'll give you prosperity, but politically and, and in your lives, we're calling the shots. We're gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna make all the money you can. And that's how you have companies like, you know, um, you know, the, the, the Internet boom out there with Weibo and with Alibaba and these major Chinese companies who wise another up and coming one that typically under a communist regime, you know, how many Soviet companies have you ever heard of? Aside from Lada, which, you know, I happen to know that because, you know, I, I've got family in Greece and they drove Soviet cars there for a little while. Otherwise, I don't point. think I've ever, ever seen a Lada in the United States. Yeah. You know, it was it's a great point you bring up. It's a great it is, point. And it wasn't it wasn't what it was. You don't see many North Korean companies either. You don't see any Cuban companies out there for that matter. Well, I do. Uh, you know, I do. I do have my coffee Twitter. company. But. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> That's it, though. <laughs> You know, but it's, you know, the Chinese have diversified and become, you know, it's it's almost, it's, it's a Chinese style socialism. It's like communism with a flavor of capitalism allows the country to make a, make a, a lot of money. And the people of that country make a lot of money and to control a lot of capital around the world. Again, that may be pulled back a little bit, but it's not going away. And it's going to hurt them too. Go now, ahead, sorry. No, no, no. I, I apologize to interrupt you, but you, you just with that being said, um, a couple of months ago, prior to COVID-19, there was all these protests happening in Hong Kong. I mean, has mm-hmm. that just now stopped? Is that over? It's Well, I don't know if it's over. It's kind of quiet right now. Uh, but the underlying tension is still there. And again, it's not an economic issue. It's, it's, it's a political. Hong Kong, you realize, has been only, you know, has been, has been under China itself maybe what 20 years now it was like the 1990s if i recall where i think it was left. 99 wasn't it i that, believe so yeah when, when you know the lease that britain had over them took them over you know hong kong was was a 
was a prosperous capitalistic city, you know, and, and when China took it over, they promised it was one country, two systems. That's what they were touting it as. And, you know, aside from, from, the, from the millions of dollars of, of outflow from, from Hong Kong before the takeover happened, the people that stayed behind were, were convinced that oh, this was going to work. And maybe it did work for the first three, four, five years that that happened. But as time went on and as, as Chinese authoritarian rule took over parts of Hong Kong, not economic, mind you, authoritarian, that's, that's, that's the PRC style. Mm-hmm. Economically, do what you want, but, you know, politically, we're going to control you. You know, Hong Kong had been, the people of Hong Kong have been living in, in Western-style freedom for 200 years. You know, that's, that's a bitter pill to swallow at this point. And as, as time went on, it kept getting harder and harder, which is what one of the reasons that gave birth to these protests. You know, and it's, it's what it is. They, they, like any other group, they want their freedom. And what are your thoughts on Taiwan? Taiwan is is a success story out there right now. I don't, you know, China keeps saying that, that they're going to do something with it. And, you know, Xi Jinping, maybe must have been, he recently, a few months ago, was was saying that a little after the Taiwanese elections, must have a couple, three months ago, it was before the before the pandemic, uh, was saying that, uh, you know, they still called them a renegade province. Well, they've been called a renegade province now for 50, 60, 70 years now, whenever, you know, it's been like that, since the 1940s, 70, 70 years or so. It doesn't make any sense for them to make any attack there. War, about, you know, realize, war is bad for business, you know, and, and China is all about business. Sure, they'll saber rattle, they'll control their, their area around there. You know, the South China Sea, they're making inroads there, not because they, you know, they want the, uh, the atolls or anything like that. Well, a third of the world's shipping goes through there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal for them economically, that area. The resources that exist there. Yeah, there's a lot of gas. Are a big deal. You know, it's, it's, they're not there because they like the place or they want territory, they want, you know, expand their territory for, for any political reasons. Again, it's economic. You know, they've got one foreign base right now, China. It's in Djibouti in, in the eastern coast of Africa. It's a military base, a uh, naval base, I'm sorry. Uh, it's there not because they want to do any military activity in, in, in Africa. It's because the coast off Somalia is full of pirates, and it's they've been hijacking Chinese ships. So again, it's economic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's gotcha. all the Chinese are interested in at the end of the day, and that's what their problem with the that's what their issue with the South China Sea is as well. You know, and okay, they can get some territory out of the deal, great, but that territory also comes with a lot of natural resources, which bolster their economy. So, well, that brings me back to my original question. Now, and this actually raises another question: Britain had originally, and I think I think this was probably about four months ago. Um, maybe January, Britain had agreed to let Huawei handle the 5G network. And mm-hmm. as soon as COVID-19 came out, Boris Johnson, the PM, um, came out and said, you know what, we're, we might have to rethink this now. And we're seeing a lot of rethinking. And that brings me back to my original question. Is China, do they get pushed so far back that they have to retaliate? Because you had mentioned that, you know, war is bad for business, but... On the flip side, war sometimes is good for business. Production war ramps up, good. you know. Mm-hmm. War is sometimes good for business. Hell, the world, world War II got, us out, got the world out of the Depression, out of the uh, Depression of the 1930s, for that matter. And yes, they are scaling back because places like Britain and, and Australia and, you know, I go back to the, the, the Five Eyes Alliance, which is an alliance of Western countries that predates, almost predated NATO. Hold on one about, second. For our audience, sure. uh, especially our younger audience, uh, explain what the Five Eyes is. Five Eyes is, is five, made up of five countries, uh, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. And it was pulled together in 1941, the middle of, the, of World War II. And it was, I guess, I guess five former British colonies, for, for lack of it, plus the four, Brit- four, four, four former British colonies, plus the United States, that were close allies in this fight against, against Nazism in Europe. And we're going to become the 
initial eyes and ears for each other in the world. And this sort of was the beginning of sort of the blueprint for what later became the NATO alliance, which NATO, of course, doesn't include Australia and New Zealand. But the concept was what it was based on. Now, gotcha. Five Eyes exists still, for that matter. And Five Eyes is actually, you know, Australia and New Zealand have become, you know, two of the Five Eyes in South in, in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, with Canada and the United States from their West Coast doing the same thing. But again, over time, it's this, you know, Australia and New Zealand, up until recently, uh, had embraced economically China. Because again, it's, just, it's, a, it's a major regional economic power. Closer to get to China than just to get the United States from, from, from Oceania. It was, it was cheap to operate there. So my point I was trying to make with this is that, you know, even within the Five Eye Alliance, where... Hawaii was 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 going to build networks in in Oceania, in, in in New Zealand and in Australia. These again have been scaled back. Two reasons: number number one, they've started listening to Washington a little bit and saying, "Hey, maybe there's an ulterior motive to what China is doing here." And number two is, do we really want to be beholden on something as important as as, as a communications network to a foreign country? Now, on the flip side, now you know, does the Australian or the, the New Zealand uh, you know, local telephone companies have the resource to do this? They'll probably figure it out. Just like I'm sure, you know, the European systems will with, with Britain and other countries that have been looking at why as well. Again, it's another hit to China. And yes, to your point that, you know, as 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 every as China takes a hit, it's going to bounce back. Yes, it still has to show the world that, you know, we're still here. Mm-hmm. You know, Xi Jinping is a shrewd guy and everything with him is, is about optics when it comes down to it. If the world see, perceives China falling or perceives China getting weaker, then there'll be less business flowing through. How to combat that in, in a situation like this? Yeah, arm up, a, you know, fire up the uh, fire up the aircraft carriers and the battleships. Make a couple claims down on some atolls in the South China Sea and say, hey, you know what? We're still here. Well, you know, I, I don't know if you, you saw the story a couple of days ago where they're about to unveil a, a nuclear a nuclear capable stealth bomber that apparently can, can, can reach Los Angeles. It's no coincidence that this stuff is being unveiled now because China is worried both economically and with, with everything going on in the world that they're losing their stature. People are pulling back and not so much because either they're, they're not so much because of what, what China has been doing, which they have not been playing very nicely last last few months, but just they're looking internally. The pandemic has turned people inward. Mm-hmm. And it scared them, scared the world enough to think, okay, you know what? Globalist international trade has been great. We've made a lot of money, but you know, here's this pandemic that brought everything to a halt, and now we can't get meat. You know, yeah. So yeah. it's 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 made people reconsider and rethink how they want and how they, how they're going to approach business. And China's seeing this, and they're trying to find a way to keep themselves relevant. You know, I want to I want to change the topic really quick um, because it just it it really just rattled something in my brain. In regards to Boris Johnson, Great Britain, and, you know, the Brexit, would this now benefit, like if everyone's scaling back, everyone's bringing back manufacturing to their own continent, like North America with this, obviously, I I can't think of it right now, but... The new trade, you smacked that call, but it's not called that. Yeah. Mexico-Canada agreement. NAFTA times two, whatever it is, uh, IMAC or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. uh, and my apologies to the audience. I just had a brain freeze there. But um, would this actually benefit Brexit now? Because their original plan was to do this, and now they're kind of forced to do this because of COVID nineteen. They are kind of forced to do this, and you know, Brexit. When it was happening, there were there were there were colleagues of mine that said, "Well, this portends bad things for the European Union as a whole." At the time, I wasn't buying it. But as I see now, you know, I, I, you know, aside from from just Brexit in, in in Britain, there are similar Brexit movements in Italy growing, and in France, and in Greece, and 
you know, and it's not just limited to to the Southern European, you know, the poor countries, the Spain, the Italy, the Greece, and the European, the Portugals, but countries in 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 Northern Europe and the bigger countries in Eastern Europe, like Poland, are are starting to get fed up with how the union is run and how things are happening there, and are using the pandemic as an example of. You know, we can't really rely on Brussels or Berlin anymore because they they haven't been able to help them. You know, Italy was on their own during the pandemic. And we saw what happened in Northern Italy, the disaster up there during the pandemic. They, they were recovering from it, thank God. But yeah, plus you know, Brussels, was, Brussels had rejected what we have. What we, yeah, yeah, they rejected it. Exactly. Yes, they did reject it at the you know, it was Brussels that rejected it at the behest of Berlin and, and of Amsterdam. You know, in countries, you know, in, in, in Athens and Rome and and, and Madrid really needed this money you know to, to make things going you know and, and granted greece is coming out of a out of an economic crisis i hate to say it but it's kind of used to living that way down there but it's it's at some point it, things have got to start getting better mm-hmm. and you know when when the bigger countries in a union that have pledged to to support each other are not doing so but what's the point in, in doing this agreed what's the point in sticking around you know it's yeah. it's greece saw this during their own crisis too and even you know the 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 restructuring that led to their their economic crisis, which was led by Berlin, essentially, that, that brought that country to its knees for, for for a number of years, and that's been going and, on for a decade now. It has been, yeah. it has been, you know, and it's it's been you know double, you know, we're talking about double digit unemployment here. The next next, you know, with, with a labor report coming out on Friday, they're they're predicting somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent unemployment to be in this country. That's been standard in southeastern Europe now for like you said, almost a decade. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's like they're normal there now. It is, which is horrible. Yeah, you know, and it's they're getting fed up with it. You know, and many Greeks saying, you know, before the European Union, fine, we weren't the richest country around. We had our drachma. It wasn't worth a whole lot. But you know what? We may do. It's not this. Yeah. You know, and Spain is saying the same thing. And at this point, you know, Hungary is saying the same thing, too. Hungary, Grant Orban decided to go all authoritarian out there, which is violating everything that the European Union stands for politically. So he may get thrown out at the end of the day, the way that's going. Well, the thing is, but, Hungary and and Poland, um, they even though Poland was part of the EU, they always they always were the last guy in the room, for lack they of were. a better word. They were. And they're the first guy to complain about that. And it's it's yeah, Poland was never really totally bought entirely the European experiment. It made sense, I guess, as a notion when you're you know, when you're coming out of out of the Iron Curtain in the 90s. And early 2000s, it made sense of you know this, this rich Western alliance. Like, yeah, we want to be part of this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are, we're part of it now. Well, okay, we have a situation where economically they control us a lot. Politically, they kind of have a say on things we don't want to have a say on. Why are we doing this exactly? Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like I said, this pandemic has made people look inward, and it's happening a lot across Europe. I think Brexit, which is the first of many, to be honest with you. We may not. We may see a very different European Union in the next decade. We may not see a European Union in twenty years anymore. How would you? Point. How would you unravel that? Oh my goodness, it would be it would be a nightmare. You know. Yeah, I mean, would the example, euro you know, still stand, or does everyone go back to their own currency? I everyone, mean, I, everyone has to go back to their own currency. The euro is based on a collective on the collective security of, of you know however many countries are in the union now, twenty some odd countries now. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I like, watched a documentary uh, just last week. Um, I forget what country it was. Um, it was just north. North of Australia, it was actually an island. Well, New Guinea, maybe or something. Or it could have been Indonesia. New Guinea. It could. It was. Yeah. yeah, it could have been something like that. But they also used the euro as their number one currency. Oh, New Caledonia. You're thinking lots well, of French territory. Oh, there but, you yeah. go. Okay. So they, they're they're administered by France. They would go back to the franc if that would happen. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, you know, okay. unraveling that would be would be disastrous for especially a lot of the countries in the south. You know, it'd be like you know, as a flippant example, you know, say Michigan decides to be its own country. So we got to have our own currency now. Well, so we're gonna have I bet Michigan two to on one it. on California before Michigan. Yeah. Well, hey, Michigan just thought of it. Well, right, we'll yeah, go to California. Sure. We got the California. No, I'm dollar. just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
so we've got now this debt that we have to pay to the the, the former federalist area to the U.S. or the Greece, the you know Greece for example, to pay to the U.N., which is going to be this massive debt that we owe for 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 infrastructure they build for all that kind of stuff. But it's going to be payable in the case of you know my example here, the U.S. It's going to be payable in U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got California dollars, which should be worth as much. So all of a sudden now I'm going to be economically decimated because all my money is going to have to go back to the Washington because I owe the most money for separating. You know, yeah, uh, and then I have to unravel everything that's been part of this federalist system, and not just so much as the political or the economic side, the infrastructure, the you know gas lines, water lines, oil lines, you know, and everything that's been created over the course of of of, of x many decades. Oh, I would be a nightmare to unravel that. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a high school question. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were to unravel the EU, let's say let's say Italy left, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think Italy would be the first. In my I opinion. agree. I agree. They're pretty. They're pretty annoyed with Brussels right now. Exactly. Um, plus, they're they're you know the European political system always confuses me. Who's mm-hmm. in charge here? You're you got voted in, but you're the guy in charge. Like, how does that? This work? is it exactly. Who's actually running the show here? Um, but um, so it, let's say Italy's the first to go, and then Greece probably would be the second. Keep our debt and good luck. Goodbye and good luck. Thanks for the yes. cash. You know exactly. Uh, Poland then would be the third, in my opinion. Uh, Spain then, would be part of that group as well. Yeah, and then Hungary, I think, would be the fourth. Yeah. Um, would there be a way, economically speaking, to keep the euro alive but the governments separate? There would be. They could become a, essentially a free trade zone with a common currency. Currency, you know, and that's what that's what you know. Back before the European Union became the European Union, it was called the European Economic Community. Yeah, I remember and it was that, yeah. it was like, you know half a dozen countries in Western Europe. It was a couple of Scandinavian ones: France, Germany, Britain, Portugal. Spain, Italy, I think was what it was. I'm sure I'm missing a couple. Uh, they were using their old currencies then, but the idea was that the, the notion of the euro existed then as a common currency because a common market, if you're going to create a common market, having a common currency would make sense. If the countries that remain within the European Union, you know, revert back to just either becoming like an EEC again or just calling it like a eurozone, you know, uh, just, just a financial area. Sure, some of the stronger economies would, would, would still be able to do that. You know, the Benelux countries, Germany, uh, the Scandinavian countries, they've got the economic capacity to be able to weather the storm of the southern half of the European Union going on its own and still be able to maintain the currency. Now, the euro is not going to be what it won't be what it was and it won't be again for a while. There'll be no confidence with the soul at that international currency of choice as the leader. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's what that's what it would have to be if that came to be, at least for a while. You know, I don't see for as much as economic output the, you know, and, and strength the Chinese have. I, I can never imagine the yuan being the international currency of choice. I just I don't think anyone's ready to make that leap. You know. All right, but, Tony, yeah. listen, we got a little off topic here going from mm-hmm. Asia to Europe. Yeah. Uh, but it was definitely a fun conversation. I definitely want to follow up with you on this. I, th- I think we could have another great conversation very soon for the audience. Absolutely. But Absolutely. before we get out of here, for the audience, tell them who you are, who's the businesses you're looking to work with and you do the best job for, and most importantly, how do they contact you? Well, contact me. I will start with that. Like you said at the beginning of the segment, my company is the Minotaur Group. We're, we're, we're based in D.C. Uh, we're in, for those of you that know the area, the city up here, we're up in Tenley Town, uh, which is kind of the northwest side of the city. Uh, small company, but we're very dynamic. We do a lot of, uh, do like you said at the beginning, we do a lot of work on, on, tra- on looking at geopolitical trends around the world. And primarily for a customer base, we're looking at, you know, people that that worry about these things large fortune 100 companies shipping companies oil companies hedge funds and anybody that needs to know at a moment's notice what's happening uh we also provide uh country country studies and country security uh reports if you're doing business in in you know sudan for example or ethiopia or indonesia 
need to know how to get in, how to get out, how to stay safe, what to worry about there, you know, how to get access to, to people that may help you get out of the country. If you need to be, we can, we do that kind of work as well. Um, we also for training uh, to some degree, not only just, just training in terms of, you know, practical training on how to get in, get out of the country, keep yourself safe. But, you know, crisis management training, understanding how a crisis can affect you, your company, uh, protecting yourself from from man-made stuff that, that can happen or natural disasters uh, and helping you with post-crisis recovery in your company. If you're in a place where, you know, a war breaks out or a revolution breaks out and, and you lose that that capacity for a while, we can help you out there as well. Uh, all the work we do is, is, is quantitative. It's all database. We don't believe, you know, a lot of people in this business, you know, well, my gut says this. We don't, we don't believe in our gut. We believe in hard numbers and, and, and facts. And that's how we operate. But please take a look at our website, you know, theminotaurgroup.com. That's uh, T-H-E-M-I-N-O-T-A-U-R group.com. Send us an email at info at theminotaurgroup.com or follow us on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, you know, we also put out a, a bi-weekly newsletter kind of discuss of, uh, discuss what the issues are in, the, in, that, in that given period of time. A uh, lot of good free value for, for people that are interested in this set of stuff. You can sign up on our website. All right, Tony, I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, just hearing your closing statement there, I might have a client for you. I was just thinking awesome. about it while you were speaking. Uh, and maybe not a client, but a collaboration, which could sure. still be beneficial. And to Absolutely. all the 880 listeners, stick with us. We will be right back with our next guests.